Okay, so thank you for being here this morning. This is uh, the almost the end of why I'm not an uh, agnostic. Uh, we've dealt with why I'm not an atheist. We've dealt with why I'm not a Buddhist. But now we've been dealing with why I'm not an agnostic for a number of different weeks. We opened that door by my count, I don't know, six weeks or six lessons or so ago. If you've not had those lessons yet, uh, or if you've missed some of them, they're all available on the Internet, either in written form or in a video form, thanks to our amazing Internet people. And so please feel free to go on the Internet and view those classes if that's something that's an interest to you or something you're concerned about. The way we've done it is we've weighed the difference between there being a God and what life is like if there is a God, what the world would be like, what reality would be, versus what reality would be if there's not a God. And we've tried to take some of the most common arguments for there being a God and most common arguments against there being a God and put them in the scales to see which side carries the preponderance of the evidence or the greater weight of the credible evidence. And in that way is the way we, in fact, these scales are scales I use in court. That's the way we prove in court. Uh, 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 matter. So the proving of God is not a science question because God is not a science and we don't subject him to a scientific experiment. The proving of God is something that's done through uh, much more uh, uh, reliable in some ways, but in some ways less certain, but in ways that are ways we prove anything that's outside of the scientific realm. The ways I would prove, do I love my wife or not? Well, let's put the evidence into the scales and see. Let's make those determinations. And so that's the way things are done, the way things are proven outside of the science realm. So when we look at it as an agnostic, an agnostic being someone who doesn't know if there's a God or not, that agnostic needs to do the weighing. That agnostic needs to say, is the evidence for a God sufficient such that the scales tilt that way? Or is the evidence against God sufficient that the scales tilt that way? Or is truly the evidence, when all is said and done, evidence that leaves us with uncertainty? My contention is, is that the evidence strongly indicates there's a God. The evidence that we've looked at thus far is evidence of things that, that I've, I've already put up here, but they're evidence things like... Um, the, the, the way that I can't live up to the standards that I'd like to. That's a real truth in my life. And, and it's one that indicates to me there's a God. The fact that I believe there's significance in life. That, that this life is, all of us, somewhere deep down inside, have this longing and this desire that recognizes there's got to be more to life. There's got to be some meaning. There's got to be some purpose. And maybe we're ready to say, no, there is no purpose and life is a random event. But that'll quickly lead us down a road to nihilism that most of us don't want to go down. And most of us don't think is proper. And most of us don't live down that road. And if we don't live that down that road, there needs to be a reason. The same is true for the dignity of humanity. You know, we, we're going to have food at the, the picnic today, but nobody's bringing grandma in the sense that we're going to eat her. You know, we're not going to barbecue grandma. 
you, you go to the funeral home, they'll cremate your loved one when they're dead, but they don't barbecue them and return them to you as pork chops. Not, well, not wouldn't be pork, it'd be human chops, you know, and get the ribeye and get the, you know, that that's, the, we don't eat people. We value humanity in a, in a way unlike other animals. There is a special dignity to human life that makes sense if we're made in the image of God. But if all we are, if there's no God, I mean, other animals eat themselves. The orangutans eat the monkeys. The sharks eat the fish. We all have right and wrong. And we recognize right and wrong as something beyond merely what society says. Right and wrong is something beyond even what we feel. Right and wrong is not something we invent. It's something we learn and discern. It exists outside of us. That only makes sense if we're something other than a, a can of chemicals. If, if there's no God, we're just chemistry. If there is a God, then there is such a thing as right and wrong. Fair and justice start making sense. Why is it that as a four-year-old, our kids can learn to say or don't have to be taught to say, this isn't fair? They're hardwired to think fair is important. Well, fair doesn't exist in this world. But we're hardwired to believe it important because we're hardwired that way by God. Um, the value of humanity. Now, those are arguments that are typically used for God, but there are arguments that are used to say there is no God. We looked at the one on suffering for the last two weeks, and I'd urge you if suffering is an is a, a, a reason that you don't believe in God or you question God, go back and look at those lessons, listen to those lessons, talk about it, think about it, and work through it. I believe that suffering makes sense with there being the God that the Jewish and Christian scriptures attest to. I think it makes perfect sense. Now, what I want to talk about today are two more arguments that are used against the idea that there's a God. These are arguments that are supposedly going to weigh on this side of the scales and maybe do something with those arguments we've already had. The first one is this. We don't see God. If there's a God, why doesn't he just show himself to me? You know, God, come here right now and I'll believe. And many are the agnostics and many are the atheists who've thrown that gauntlet down to God. Where are you? Show yourself. If you're God, you should be able to do so. Now, there's a certain appeal to that argument. And the appeal comes from the fact that early in our life, we learn about our surroundings through our senses. Most of us have five senses. Most of us have a sense of sight, and so we see things. Some do not, and compensate for it through a better development of their other senses. Some have a sense of hearing. Most people do. Some do not. Some are deaf, and they compensate through others. But through what we see, through what we hear, through what we taste, through what we touch, through what we smell, this is how as Children, as infants and children, we learn about our surroundings. So we're people who learn from an early age through our sensations. 
through our senses. So there is a certain appeal then to say, okay, if God is there, why can't I see him? Why don't I hear him audibly? Where's the taste of God? Where's the touching of God? Where's the smelling of God? And, and, and that appeal is there. What I would urge us to do when we consider this is remember that we're not infants anymore. We're not toddlers anymore. By the time we get to school, we've started that process of what happens to us as we age. We began learning through our thinking and not merely our sensing. And so as we start to learn through our thinking, there's a world of reality that we can learn that we'll never learn simply through our sensing. Sensing limits us in our ability to learn. We would have a great deal of difficulty learning a concept like love through our senses. You can say, well, no, I know love because, uh, uh, you know, I've got the embrace of my wife or the, the loving hands of a parent for a child. Well, yeah, that, that might be some evidence, but is that love or is that lust or is that selfishness or is that, I mean, th- there's a quality of, uh, uh, of relationship that we call love that we know about through thinking. You know, oxygen is really hard to see. Oxygen is really hard to smell. Hey, you hear that oxygen? No. Now someone has said the expression of sucking all the oxygen out of the room. But then you'd hear the sucking noise. It wouldn't be, yeah, there goes oxygen. Uh, all the carbon dioxide stayed behind. I can hear it. Now, man, I love the taste of oxygen. Ah, when I get hungry, I just open my mouth and breathe. Love that taste. No, but, but we'll learn about oxygen. You want to, to learn something about oxygen, light a candle and put a cup over it or, or a glass over it where you can watch it. And as soon as all the oxygen's gone, the candle will go out. Why will that happen? Well, we got to think about it. But we can think about it and establish it. There are many things, many aspects of cellular biology that have been determined by scientists and biologists thinking through things, not simply by visual examination. So there's a lot we learn through sensing, but there's a lot we learn through thinking. Not all reality is sensed. And that's a difference between a child and someone who's grown up. So, within the framework of that, I think the inability to know God through our senses, our five senses, will often become a part of the discussion of whether or not he exists. And it becomes part of that because people want to be able to trust their senses, thinking that their senses are most reliable. 
everybody enjoys those visual things that, that are, what are they called? Uh, they're called optical illusions. So, for example, we know, everybody knows. I'm just going to make a mark here on this paper so that it's the same size. Now, we'll turn that. Let's get it level. Everybody knows that if I draw this line and I draw the exact same line again, that those lines are the same size, right? But we all know that if I put an arrow that goes out on one, and I do an arrow that goes the opposite direction on the other, that the bottom line will appear to our eyes to be a bigger line. So we, we know you don't always trust what you see. We know you don't always trust what you hear. But there is still a certain reliability to that, that that we naturally bend to. Because it's been real for us since our earliest, since before our memories. So what are we going to do here? I think the right thing to do is to weigh the evidence. So the evidence, this is, we're on the negative perceptions. Question, why can't we see God? Is that, in fact, proof that there is no God? And so we put all of the evidence in there, we throw this into the scales, and we see how it works. Now, to talk about this, I need to issue a warning to all of you. How many of you are human? Okay. I, I should, I'm sorry, I'm a lawyer. How many of you are human? Uh, okay, y'all are. Um, we've got to be very careful as humans. Because any time we start looking at something, beware, 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 narcissism is at play. We all tend to think about it. Oh, Dale Hearn. We all tend to think about it. He's watching on internet today and he told me to pull my ear like Carol Burnett. I got nothing. Okay. We all need to watch, think about, watch out because narcissism comes into play. We tend to think about stuff like us. We tend to think it's about us. Oh, if God's really there, show himself to me. Well, says who? So I was in a deposition one time. And I was deposing a, a pretty high up fella in a company. In fact, he was the head of the company. And I thought the fella... Now, a deposition, let me tell you what a deposition is. We're in this room, a conference room, real long table. Okay. And I'm there, and I'm asking my questions, and there's a video camera on the witness. The witness, the company man, has about 150 lawyers. That's an exaggeration. But he's got a boatload of them all lined up in their $7,000 Brioni suits. I mean, it's just like really... a gentleman's quarterly style show on the other side of the table. I'm there wearing my tech football jersey. <sighs> Feeling victorious today. Uh, no, I was, I'm there and, and the fellas just not being honest about something. And I've got him caught. I've got it in writing. It's black and white. It's right there. So I put the paper down in front of him and I said, look, sir, right here. And I can't reach across the table to point to the paper. 
So I said, sir. So I stand up and I reached my finger over. I said, look, just read that first line right there. It says the exact opposite. At which point, one of his lawyers, Steve, Steve uh, says to me, uh, I'm instructing you to sit down, Mr. Lanier. Uh, well, who made you my mom or dad? So I looked at him, I said, what? He said, I'm instructing you to sit down. I said, well, I'm instructing you to stand up. He said, sit down. I said, stand up. I should have brought you all the transcript. It's really funny to read. I said, sit down. He said, I'm telling you to stand up. I mean, just, yeah, yeah he, 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 sit down. And I said, look, you got no right to tell me to sit down. And if you do, then I have a right to tell you to stand up. That's just fairness. So I would suggest you be quiet and make the witness answer the question. And I went back to the question. He says, you show such contempt for us by the way you came in here dressed with jeans and a golf shirt. And, uh, uh, you know, that's just disrespectful. I mean, I'm not on camera. I'm, I'm, that's the way. And I said to him, I said, look, sir, with all due respect, your client's company killed my client's husband. I represent a woman who's a widow that should not be a widow because of what your company did. I said, now. I care immensely about how I convey my attitude to my client, but I got to be honest, my client doesn't give one whit about how I'm dressed right now. She wants the company to answer the question right there in writing. Then I looked at him and I remembered I was a Christian, so I had to smile and diffuse it. (laughs) So I just smiled and I said, and by the way, I don't know who picked out that tie with that suit, but I think that's pretty bad too. We have a tendency to think that we just can tell God, hey, if you're there, front and center, show me. Stand up, sit down, stand up. We don't do that with God. That's that's a bit absurd to start thinking we could make such a demand on God. And the argument generally will go something like this. Well, you know, this is if there's a God who wants who wants me to be converted, then he would do it. Really? See, what people are really fond of doing from this self-absorbed perspective is kind of taking the story of Genesis and turning it on its head. By that I mean, instead of God making us in His image, we have a tendency to want to remake God in our image. Well, if God is there, surely He'd do this. That's what I would do if I were God. If I were God, I'd make an appearance. Really interesting, by the way. One of the fellows who's made this argument I've asked to come um, uh, present and, and, and debate and be a part of a, a library experience. And he said he, he would come and make an appearance for 10000 bucks. But he expects God to show up for nothing. <laughs> you, 
You don't, you don't just sit. I mean, somewhere in the recesses of our brain ought to be some voice shouting out, uh, maybe God doesn't just show up on the spot just because I demand it as what I want so that I get the proof I want that God exists to overcome my doubts. That's pretty bold, pretty narcissistic, but even still, let's examine it. So why doesn't God just show himself? Well, I can't give all the answers, but I can talk to you about it. The God of the Jewish Christian scriptures claims to have revealed himself or shown himself through those scriptures. That when we read those scriptures, we learn about who he is. So let's just experiment with that for a moment. I would invite anyone intrigued on this issue, not just to give lip service and a high school debate formula to the issue, but to really study it. Go back and look and compare the religion of Israel as revealed through Scripture to that of all of its neighbors. And you'll be stunned. Israel stands out like a, like, like, like a, a light bulb brightly lit in the midst of, of burned out bulbs. It is, Israel is unique. Israel was given a unique revelation about God that paints God very differently than all the other religions of its day. Just from a cultural perspective, how Israel could have gotten to such a a revelation that's so distinct from the other religions of its day is, is a phenomenon that needs to be explained if there's no God. Let me give you an example, though, that's especially relevant on this point. If you go back, you can find the other cultures, whether in the Mesopotamian region, in Egypt, or even outside of Egypt and and, and the Middle East, you'll find cultures did believe that gods could be seen. The Egyptians worshipped among their pantheon, Ra, the sun god. And if you see a a picture of him in the hieroglyphics, he'll generally have a sun on his head. Ra, the sun god, was deemed to be the actual sun. The Greeks and the Latins had the sun god rising in his chariot and taking his chariot across the sky. Booting back under the world the next day to get the fresh start. And you could see the God. The middle figurine is an idol of Thor. The thunder God with his hammer. And when the thunder God Thor awakened or was angry, you could hear him. You had a sense. It went, kaboom. We call it thunder. The carving on the far right is Baal. The storm god. The Israelites would fall into worshiping these idols because they wanted something they could see. I don't think they worshipped Thor. They didn't know him. But they worshipped Baal. They worshipped the Ashtoreths. They they worshipped 
they'd make a golden calf when they came out of Egypt. But that's not what had been revealed to them. That was them assimilating into the other cultures or taking from those cultures and bringing it in because they wanted a God they could see. That's the unusualness of this. The unusualness of that Ten Commandments that starts out with, you will have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, in the water under the earth. Israel's unique. You can't carve God. You're not going to see God. God's not going to be represented by something like this. All the other religions, you got it. You want to see Him? You can see Him. But not so Israel. Israel's God is not a God that's going to be seen visibly. Now, is this because... Israel was trying to come up with an excuse to explain to the agnostics and atheists of its age why there's no visible God. Of course not. That wasn't even a question then. This is just the revelation that's there. Moses has got a request into God. In Exodus, while he's on Mount Sinai, Moses says to God, I want to see your face. And the reply that God gives Moses is, you can't see my face. Man can't see me and live. That's absolutely antithetical to every other culture in that age. That is a revelation that is so bizarre. In that day, the idea that God's not a visible God was absolutely an outrageous, novel, weirdo, Bizarro thought, but it makes perfect sense in our age because now we can understand why. We can understand that if there is truly a God out there who made so many stars that you've got to write a one and then put 23 zeros after it. And that God knows the name of every one of those stars. And that God holds this universe, figuratively, in the palm of His hand. Any God so massive, so big, that He commands that, is not going to be seen by Moses, you, or me, and live. Can't happen. Not in His godness. Not in His... Complete godness can't happen. And yet, having said all of that, we've got to also see at play the dynamic that came in at Bethlehem. Because the Christian faith teaches that God, fully God, did show himself by becoming fully human. But in that process, though fully God, we've got to remember the admonition that Paul gives us. Christ emptied himself to take the form of a man, being born in the likeness of man. There was an emptying. God's not going to be contained in the human three-pound brain. You you, you look at it and, and, you know... Even the idea of an incarnate Jesus 
while bizarre for its day, is making sense to me today. Because there is this issue of how can God be fully God but be fully human? Look at these passages of Scripture that I've put up here. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 is the one I just referenced with uh, where Paul says that, that Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And that emptying in Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind in yourself, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In the form of God, but empties himself taking the form of a servant. There's some emptying. And that makes sense also if we remember the Matthew 24, 36 passage. Jesus is talking about when he would come again. And in the process of talking about it, he says the following. Concerning that day when Jesus would return, an hour, no one knows. The angels don't know, not even the Son. Only the Father. There are things that Jesus is Jesus Though God, with the power of God and, and, and God working miracles through him, with the knowledge and insight, but with limitations within that framework. The amazing thing to me then is that these Jewish and Christian scriptures will have something like Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. It's, it's above, it's superlative, it's greater than even the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you've established strength. But look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. When I look at the moon and the stars that you set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. That's the amazing thing to me. The amazing thing within the Judeo-Christian story is not that God can't be seen by man. In fact, that makes sense. Now that we understand what our senses are, what it is to really see something, there's no way we would see a God of those proportions. If Scripture taught that we could see God, then Scripture would have an inherent contradiction behind who that God is. So I'm, I'm not concerned about that. The, the part that I hold in awe is that a God who can't be seen by us, who's above, whose glory is above the heavens, who's made all of this, cares who we are. That's the stunner. And that's the explanation for the nativity. And so it's stunning to me. Is the fact that I can't see God evidence against God? It's not for me. I don't, it doesn't, doesn't carry any weight for me. I, the Judeo-Christian God, you, you wouldn't. It's kind of like the Trinity. People say to me, well, how can you be three and how can you be one? And I want to go, my goodness, you're right. That's, what would we expect? Let's climb out of the narcissistic shell for a moment. Quit trying to make God in our image and understand 
that there is a God who is a creature, who is a being. Be, creature denotes creation. Don't say creature, Mark. Change that. Who is a being. Beyond our wildest imaginations, our dreams, or our ability to comprehend. If the Christian faith came and said to you, oh yes, God's easy for you to understand. I would say, whoa, wait, that doesn't make sense to me. How many of you really understand quantum physics? A couple of you may. But it's not easy. God's a lot more complicated than quantum physics. He makes quantum physics 2 plus 2 equals 4. And and we're supposed to just grasp His essence? No. He explains it to us in terms that help us begin to get a handle on it. But it's not an easy thing for us to grasp. That to me is not a detraction from the issue of if there's a God. I would be turned off on the idea that any of this stuff was true if it simplified things so easy that it all made sense to me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, gee, it should be illogical and confusing in order to be true. Not at all. I'm saying it should be something majestic that still makes sense. But part of what makes sense is the fact that we're trying to understand glimpses instead of fullness. So, I don't have any trouble with why why can't we see God. Now, why do my many prayers seem unanswered? That's a tough one for people. This is a personal thing. Whether or not there's a God or just empty space when we pray, it's a personal matter and it's really something I don't think is very good evidence for or against God if you're trying to persuade someone else. Let me give you two examples. Sports day. We've got a tailgating party at the house. So... Uh, I've told you before about when I was a kid, uh, summer after seventh grade, the night before, a big game, Friday night, I'm in bed, saying my prayers, Lord, help me hit a home run. Next day, I hit a home run. I'm running around the bases, thinking, I wonder if I'd have hit that if I hadn't prayed. Now, is that home run because God answered that young boy's prayer? I did hit the bottle cap on the scoreboard in center field. So, I mean, that's got like some touch to it. Is that what the home run was? Or did I just happen to connect just right at that moment? I was driving back to the airport after a Texas Tech football game a couple of years ago. We had won. Hurrah, hurrah. No, that's no big deal. It happens all the time. And we had won. And... um uh, I'm listening to the post-game wrap-up on the radio, and one of the players says, well, of course we won. We prayed we would win. And I'm thinking, well, didn't the other side pray the same thing, probably? Is this like, okay, we've got 13 people on scholarship who are praying for Texas Tech, and only 11 for the Longhorns, because you know Austin. Uh... So, God's got to go with the tech people. 13 prayers beats 11. 
Seems a bit odd. I've got prayers that have been answered where I say, Oh, Lord, thank you so much. May I never be in doubt that you exist. You want, you want to see him? I can start listing them. One is called Becky Lanier now. She wasn't when I was praying about it, though. We got five incredible kids. We've got a granddaughter. God answers prayer. But I got a list of things I prayed about that he hadn't answered. We got a couple of people who normally sit right down here. And Jackie is fighting cancer right now. And we've been praying and praying and praying. And she's still fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. There are a number of you. I'll bet you there are at least 25 people, 35, maybe 45 people in here. I pray for regularly on some things. And it just doesn't seem to be working yet. So what do we do with this? May I make a suggestion? We have 11 minutes to go. In this 11 minutes, I'd like to suggest that there are three questions that we need to ask before we're going to consider how to use prayer answered or unanswered in our weighing system on whether there's a God. Question number one, what's the purpose of prayer? Why does prayer exist? Is prayer kind of that birthday wish list? Is prayer something we fall back on when we want something that we cannot get on our own? I got to bring back an earlier slide. Beware narcissism at play. Is prayer really about me? Am I supposed to be praying for what I want? My will be done. Gimme, 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 gimme. Oh, some of it's altruistic. Gimme stuff for my friends and my loved ones. Gimme health for my mom. My mom's sitting over there. I pray she never dies. Now she will fight me on that because her body is wearing out. She says, I'll stay here as long as I need to and then I'm ready to go home. But we don't want her to go home. So maybe I should be praying, God, let her body be refreshed. May she be spry and 25 and live forever. This isn't about me. God never made Adam and Eve and set them in the garden and said, Now, everything's going to come to you and do whatever you want everything to do. God said, I'm putting you in the garden. You got chores. You got to name the animals. You got to tend to the garden. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Now their chores are a lot harder. Now they've got to tend to the earth as fallen people whose bodies are falling apart. And they've got a garden in the midst of thorns and thistles. And God's got a purpose for this earth. And God says, I'm putting you out there to do my will, not yours. The purpose of prayer, I'm supposed to be about God's business, not mine. My prayer is not supposed to be about what I want. 
I'm supposed to be doing God's will on earth. That's the purpose of my life. That's the purpose of your life. Our lives are not, this is not about us. God does not exist so that we get what we want, when we want, where we want. We, we, we exist to get what he wants, where he wants, how he wants. Prayer is never supposed to be the other. So then how do we pray? I looked up the Lord's Prayer on Google Images and my narcissism concern was validated. Look at one of the posters you can get. Our Father, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. That's the red print. That's what jumps out at you. And then we've got some small print. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No. No, 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 no. Don't buy that poster. The Lord's Prayer, where the disciples came to Jesus, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Teach us what we need to be asking and saying to God. And what he says is, has got the emphasis right there. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Not mine, not yours, not anybody else's. Let's hold God's name holy. Let's lift him up. Let's praise him. Let's exalt him. Let's give him the glory. Let's give him the honor. Let's hold him in that high regard. May it be God whose name is hallowed. May it be His kingdom that comes. Not mine, not Hillary's, not Donald's, not Governor Abbott's, not anybody else's, not Putin's. May God's kingdom be the one that comes. May His will be done, not mine. We're praying for the will of God. Now, only after that, Does the prayer say, so please give us this day what we need to eat today. Please forgive us of our sins. Please don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And don't you see those three prayers are clearly prayers aligned with the will of God. To sustain us today is in His will. To forgive us is in His will. To lead us and deliver us from evil is in His will. So we're praying for the will of God. Now, are there limits to prayer? Of course. God's not a genie. He is not our, I'm going to give you three wishes. We all could beat that system. You wish for the first thing you want. You wish for the second thing you want. You use the third wish to get three more. We learn that at an early age. And we never run out of wishes and we take care of everything. God's not our genie. This isn't genie system. This is not Arabian Nights. This is not Aladdin. This is a real different situation. Are there limits to prayer? You bet there are. Let me give you three good solid examples from the book. The Apostle Paul, who's able to raise the dead, who's able to heal the sick, The Apostle Paul has got an infirmity. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And he says, I prayed three times for God to take it from me. And three times God says no. And he says, but it kept me from being conceited. Kept me from being arrogant. And made me rely on the grace of God. So it was a good thing. 
God does his will. It's his will that was important, not Paul's. David. David commits adultery. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Bathsheba gives birth to a sickly child. David goes into prayer and fasting. Lord, forgive. Please, Lord, let the child live. Let the child live. Let the child live. Let the child live. God, you're the healer. I'm sorry. I repent. I confess. I sin. Don't take it out on the child. Let the child live. You know what happens? Child dies. Jesus in the garden. Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but thy will be done. The cup does not pass in the sense that Jesus is not rescued from Calvary. It does pass in the sense that Jesus is ultimately rescued from the grave. Why do so many prayers go unanswered? Well, I think it makes sense to me that this world is spiraling towards a purpose and a will that's not mine. That's the biblical teaching. This world is spiraling toward an end that fits within God's will and God's purposes. My goal in prayer is not to be praying for stuff that's about me. My goal in prayer is to be praying for stuff that's about Him and His will. And those prayers get answered. Points for home. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. We're not going to know God by what we see. We're going to know God by the experiences of our lives. That doesn't mean we won't pick up visual clues. I learn about God from you. I learn about God through your graciousness. And I learn about God through your love. And I learn about God through your caring. I hope you learn about God some through me. I'll learn about God through words that I listen to or words that I read in the scriptures. I'll learn about God when I see Jesus as, as, as recounted in scriptures. But this is an amazing God and it's not some God that my eyes will behold in this world and in this life. That's not going to stop me from learning more about him though. Because we can learn so much more than if we just simply satisfy ourselves with a visual icon or image. Point for home two. Pray like this. Your will be done. I'm going to purpose my prayers that way. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to hear me pour out my heart for what I care about. He does. As a father does a child... God wants to hear my heart. He wants to hear my cares. He wants to hear the things about me because he cares about me. But by golly, I'm not going to be the selfish, narcissistic person who prays with me being the center of the prayer. If I've learned anything from the life of Jesus, it's that I'm going to live my life for other people and the will of God. And I want my prayers to reflect that. I want to pray for God's will in a very intentional fashion. It's not the safety valve at the end of the prayer in case I don't get the prayer answered. I can still pray, God, I so want Jackie healed of, of her cancer in this life. I want Jim healed of his cancer in this life. I want, you know, I want 
jobs. I want all of these things. But in the midst of all of that, Father, this world needs to spiral to the conclusion that brings your kingdom and glory. That brings people into your kingdom. And I don't know what role I play in that. And I don't know what role Jackie plays. And I don't know what role Jim plays. And I don't know what role you play. But if our role is one that gets God's will done because we suffer in the process, then we're suffering for Jesus. And God, thank you that I was worthy to be counted one who could. That's the attitude that's the Christian attitude. And that's the one I want to have. Final point for home and then we're done. David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. Then David arose from the earth, he washed, he anointed his clothes, he went and he changed, anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. All of his servants were stunned. They thought, like, it was going to really be bad once the kid was dead. Like, King David's going to come rain uh, all fire and fury on everybody. No. They said, what are you doing? Man, for five days you've done nothing but pray and fast and, and heap ashes on your head. He said, that's when I thought God might... Answer the prayer and heal the son. But God's determined that that's not to be done. And so I will worship the Lord. Whoa. That is a huge comment to me in my life. I want to walk in faith regardless of the answers. Because of who is faithful. And the fact this isn't really about me anyway. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we, we pray a prayer of blessing um, over each other. But one, Father, that's a blessing within your will, within your care, that you would take care of and keep and hold us in ways that enable us to do your will today through our interactions with each other, through our chances to fellowship, through our chances to show love and compassion and service. Stir up within us, Father, the good works that we can do in your name, in your will, and may we do so, Lord to your glory and that of your kingdom. Through Jesus our Lord, we pray amen and amen.